Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. I am delighted to have as my guest, Advocate Ben Winks, who is one of my favorite South African lawyers, not only because he's fantastic, particularly on human rights law, but also one of the very few excellent ones who also are very comfortable with stepping into the public space and educating and engaging the public on important intersections between law and society. He's also been involved in the case where the Nelson Mandela Foundation found itself up against every forum over the question of whether or not the old South African flag should be declared a piece of hate speech when it is waved gratuitously and not being used for purposes that are journalistic in a bona fide manner or for purposes of academic research. And the question I wanted to ask him is whether all of the arguments that were supposedly approved of by his side in the Equality Court, which every forum has been opposing in the Supreme Court of Appeal, really are as strong as it sounds. I read the papers, I watched the oral argument, and I thought on balance that every forum did not sound persuasive, and that advocate Tembeka Mukaitobi in particular was very cogent, and of course, that the Human Rights Commission also had excellent lawyers representing it. And in a way, they were playing tag team with the Nelson Mandela Foundation. But this episode is not a grand overall summary of the entire case. It is not an exploration of every single beat of the argumentation back and forth. I wanted to speak to Ben about one very small aspect of the case that was under the radar. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people zone, their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said sing it sing it and then they share that zone no i'm not going to apologize can i have my ipad please so they stole it ben thank you so much for agreeing to come on thanks for having me so i wanted to ask you if a black-led organization that is pro-black, progressive, definitely committed to anti-racism, were to march on the union buildings, royally pissed off with the African National Congress for what it has done and not done for and to black South Africans, and they waved the flag, the old South African flag that is, as a form of political protestation to indicate uncomfortable continuities between life before 94 and life after 94. Do you think that would be an instance of hate speech? So the question 
comes down, I think, to impact. Uh, so the important thing about our law on hate speech is that it looks at the expression not from the perspective of the subjective intention of the expressor, um, but the perception of, in particular, the target group or the vulnerable group that is sought to be protected. Uh, objectively speaking, how should they perceive this? If it is perceived as an affront uh, to their uh, dignity or something that will uh, expose them to uh, discrimination or detestation, um, then it would be hate speech. Um, now, the legislature crafted certain exceptions um, to the prohibition on hate speech, which specifically are artistic creativity, bona fide engagement in artistic creativity, academic or scientific uh, inquiry, um, or uh, accurate reporting in the public interest. Um, those were the circumstances in which the legislature, when they passed the Equality Act in 2000, felt that you can employ a message of hate, whether it's words or a symbol, um, in an innocuous context where the uh, target group or the group sought to be protected is not going to be hurt or harmed um, or exposed to hatred. Um, now, what this means is that messages of hate and symbols of hate must be confined then to, for example, museums um, or textbooks or you know newspaper articles uh, where it's bona fide and not gratuitous. Now, the exception you raise is an important one because it was raised by AfriForum. And it the was, answer to and I dare say that your colleague dismissed it very quickly by basically saying that you can have the right to protest and to assemble without needing a flag. And it was a good rhetorical flourish. The political animal in me thought, wait a minute, Tim Becker, you're getting away with murder because the judicial officers are caught up in your convincing speech. But the case that AfriForum had in mind, and unfortunately for them, their counsel was not convincing in sticking narrowly to this very good counterexample to the proposition that all waving of the flag is always only to be interpreted as an expression of white supremacy, unless it's bona fide artistic usage, journalistic usage, or academic slash research context. Because the case that I've sketched for you doesn't fit those three categories. It's mm. not artistic usage, it is not academic usage, and it's not journalistic usage. It is a piece of political speech and part of the political protest. And we can imagine someone like an Andilem Kitama using it as a left-leaning organization that thinks the African National Congress is too centrist but the proper characterization of what they're doing cannot be that they are using it to express and to promote white supremacy. That seems to me like a stretch. Yes, the, the difficulty, there's a practical question and then there's the principled question. The practical question is whether this would ever happen. And, you know, as far as we know, it hasn't post-1994. You know, we know that people burned 
the uh, the old flag before 1994, but um, you know this is not something that uh, often happens. If it were to happen, then the answer is for those who are then arguably or potentially charged um, or complained, the subject of a complaint to the Equality Court, then to say, well, actually the proviso which sets out the defences or the innocuous contexts is under-inclusive because it doesn't cover us. So then the problem is with the legislative choice to narrow down only those three circumstances, and in fact it should cover others. The problem is not with the declaratory order that says this is a message of hate. Um, so they won't be punished if they can then say, well, you know, the the defences are not uh, sufficiently broad because they don't include us. But the importance of the declaratory order that was given by Justice Mojapello and which we're seeking to defend on appeal um, is an important one because, you know, we can always imagine um you know, there's uh, an endless uh, capacity for imagination. But I want to stop you there, though, Ben. You know, things that people might do. With mm. this. Hold on one second, right? Our listeners can't see this because this is only an audio version of the podcast for now. But a mate of mine, who's a very deep thinker, sent me footage of when he was a student a couple of years ago. And this was a march from an organization on campus at WITS. And you can see the first banner here says... Alex to Santon, hell to heaven, which is the first expression, obviously, of how horrible life is under conditions of extreme poverty. And as the clip goes on, and these are all exclusively black, radical, young protesters. And as the clip goes on, you can see there's the old South African flag being waved from them because it's meant to embarrass the government of the day to say, Alex lives under conditions of the old apartheid. Now, the reason I'm interrupting you there is that I'm not talking here about a theoretical case, which is interesting in a university Mm. seminar, but that we genuinely have radical black activists in this country that painfully draw analogies between the past and the present. But that is political communication, Mm. and yet it doesn't seem to be accommodated under the three exceptions to hate speech. Yeah. So the there's a couple of potential answers. One is that if we use the analogy of the um, apartheid flag and the swastika, which I think is a fair one, a lot of people don't, um, but I think it is fair because both are symbols of crimes against humanity, uh, mm. declared internationally as crimes against humanity. Um, so in France, for example, displaying the old South African flag is a criminal offense because it's an offense to display a symbol of a crime against humanity. Here, of course, we're dealing with civil offenses. Um, now, the intention is irrelevant. So it may be that by doing that, they fall foul of a law because the onlookers, um, despite the fact that those bearing the flag are black, the onlookers of, for example, the swastika, if, for example, a Jewish uh, group of radical students were to display the swastika for some political purpose to say that a particular government is acting like Nazis or a particular administration is acting like Nazis, Um, they would still fall foul of the law. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because they've inflicted some kind of harm. They do that as a political choice. It's the cost of the point that they're making. They would then prevail on the court 
um, either to say that the defences are under-inclusive or to say that, um, yes, we did this and, yes, it falls foul of the prohibition on hate speech. We're using a message of hate. Um, but the sanction should be um, minimal. Uh, the sanction shouldn't include damage, substantial damages. It should perhaps just be an apology or send us for sensitization training or whatever the case may be. Mm. But because we've entered into the social po- compact in the Equality Act, which says that we're not going to expose particularly marginalized groups to messages of hate, um, it is not necessarily wrong for them, despite their subjective intention, um, to be found to have committed hate speech. Um, in the same way as a radical group, ironically using the swastika, would still be uh, found to have committed hate speech. Yeah, I I think your position is coherent. I do think it's coherent. I think it's also defensible. But in technical, philosophical terms, I'm not sure whether it is both coherent and also convincing. <laughs> And I don't think it's any fault of yours. I think it is you're articulating a correct application of the law. I think that is absolutely spot on. And this is, I guess, why I enjoy engaging you, because the last part of our exchange is going to be about whether the law got it right in the first place on balance. And it's difficult because we have to create laws for patterns for the majority of cases, cases, not for exceptions, right? I accept that too as part of lawmaking. But it just seems to me that there are two difficulties that lawmakers would have to grapple with anew when they are confronted with a case like the one that I've sketched that is a real example, not a theoretical example. The first is, who are the bystanders when we determine, in terms of the objectivity test, how the symbols are experienced and interpreted? Because I can tell you for free, I would bet my left kidney on this that the majority of black people seeing Aaron's roots walking with the flag will feel different emotions, see different things going on in that act than when Andy Lemkwitamed does so. And so not only is the question, when the court decides the application of that test, how the symbol is viewed and experienced, Who decides that? Which audience do you have in mind? And can that too change contextually? Because the person waving it can have a profound bearing on whether or not the waving in and of itself is seen as a promotion of white supremacy. I can think of very few circumstances, unless someone is Uncle Ruckus, I can't imagine most black people being seen waving the flag as doing so as an act of promoting white supremacy. So the one issue or one element of hate speech, as was articulated by the Constitutional Court in Koelane, is that it exposes the target group to discrimination, hostility or violence. Um, And the other form of harm or manifestation of harm is that it, uh, so there are three. The first is that it, it, it exposes the target group to discrimination from among the dominant group. It encourages the dominant group to discriminate. Then it also make it degrades the target group. And um, thirdly, it harms nation building and social cohesion. 
Hmm. And it can be any one of those manifestation of manifestations of harm to qualify as hate speech. It doesn't have to be all three. Sure. Um, now, one thing that, you know, looking at it from an ethical or philosophical perspective, uh, that happens when black people employ anti-black messages of hate, such as mm. the K word, for example, um, where, you know, and there was, this is a real case of, um, a, an executive, uh, black man who, uh, used the K word to degrade another black man. Yeah. Um, the fact that he's black, it may very well have a qualitatively different impact on the, uh, the receiver, but it would still qualify as hate speech. It would still be degrading. Obviously, it doesn't carry the same kind of mm. vast scup as if it's said by a white person. Sure. Um, but, uh, the risk then is that by saying, speaking in this way and by displaying the flag is that you legitimize it for uh, outsiders, for white people to say, oh, well, if they can do it, then so can we. And if they're saying that the current uh, situation in the country is worse than apartheid, then we can say that too. Um, and we can also yearn for the good old days. You know, so there's a risk there from a, from an ethical and sociological perspective of legitimizing hatred among the outside group, which is one of those manifestations of harm, is encouraging and le legitimizing mm. um, feelings of hatred among the outside group uh, or the, the dominant group. I think it's so wonderful for once to be uncertain and maybe I'll have a last say, you have a last say and we'll leave it there. If you're listening to this podcast, I think for once I'm not clear on this. And as I go to gym, maybe I'll think about it while pushing some weights because I think Ben is right. Even if we go beyond the application of the law, which is a boring way to end a conversation, even if the law matters, the difficulty for lawmakers is that you do have a utilitarian approach to coming up with policies and with laws. And the question is, should that one or small, even maybe even large for that number, number of activists and organizations who wish, wishes, who wish to employ symbols of hate in order to express bona fide political commentary be allowed to do so if it can lead to misappropriation by dominant groups who still have a nostalgic yearning for 1652 and 1948. The debate in me wants to push back, but I think the pushback would be insincere and say, well, each case must be treated on its on its merits. If Aaron's roots cries his luck, the facts would have to justify his usage. And if he doesn't, he can't cry foul if he gets punishment that's different to what Andrea Klitama does or doesn't get, for example. But I think the broader sociological point that you make is absolutely spot on. And it's interesting to think through these consequences, the possibility of curtailing political speech, but doing so in order not to re-inscribe harm. What are your final thoughts? It's a very difficult policing speech in any way is always extremely delicate. Um, whether it's in a defamation context or a privacy context, but it, particularly in a hate speech context, because there you're trying to protect something that's more esoteric than someone's reputation or an individual's hurt feelings of dignity, as you do in other contexts. It's something that's very difficult to measure, very difficult to, um, and, and of course, different things mean, um, you know, words mean different things to different people. 
and symbols mean different things to different people. So it's very difficult to find what is the dominant meaning for the reasonable South African, yeah. the reasonably tolerant South yeah. African, but also the reasonably inclusive and protective of people's dignity. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's extremely difficult and extremely delicate. But in this case, I think that the guidance, uh, the best guidance is to be taken from, um, there's a constitutional and also an international law injunction to eradicate racism. And those are the words used in the international instruments and in the constitutional authorities, like the name change case. And eradicate is a very strong word, and it requires strong measures in order to for that constitutional injunction to be uh, discharged. Um, so I think it's important, and as Chief Justice Mokweng said in the name change case, not to pamper the anxieties of those who you know, cling to the status quo. But when you're eradicating racism, you have to take fittingly firm measures. Um, so while it is very delicate, I'm almost inclined to err on the side of protecting dignity and equality rather than um, liberty in this case. Mm. Ben, the legal fraternity is lucky to have you because you think skillfully as a lawyer and sometimes lawyers who understand politics as well as you do end up politicking rather than still lawyering and knowing how to draw on an understanding a deep understanding of the ethical and political issues but still appreciating that law is like plumbing for better or worse it's a really difficult balance to get right and you do it so well thanks for coming on this platform thank you it's always a pleasure